Please pray with me. Almighty God, today may your word be proclaimed with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Hunter Myers. I'm the student ministry director here at the Cathedral Church. In my sophomore year of college, I took a required course called Counseling Youth and Families. This was a a course that was required for all youth ministry majors and for a very real purpose. Um, Our professor, Dr. David Olshine, who spoke at our parents' conference last year here at the Cathedral, uh, he's a preeminent family systems counselor. This is what he does. And what he introduced me to was a, a paradigm for understanding family dysfunction. So you can see where this is going. Um, so think about family dysfunction in, uh, in two sets of pairs, okay? So the first set of, is on one end, rigid, and on the other, chaotic. So a rigid family system has really strong rules and boundaries. Every member knows right where they fit in, and the rules are so strong that they can hold everybody in, and they don't really let anybody out or from the outside in. A chaotic family system is just the opposite. It has fewer rules and boundaries, and its members typically don't have the same rules and rhythms that govern and regulate our everyday life and relationships. So that's the first pair, rigid and chaotic. And the second pair has disengaged on one end and enmeshed on the other. A disengaged family system from the outside can look more like a group of people living together than like a proper family unit. Uh, Everyone has such strong boundaries and identity that there's not really much of a difference between who's family and who's just a really good friend. And on the other end, an enmeshed family system has so few boundaries that it's kind of hard to tell where one person ends and the other one begins, you know? Um, It's, uh, there's so, the interpersonal boundaries are confused and often undifferentiated. So that's the second pair, disengaged and enmeshed, largely based on interpersonal boundaries. So we've got the rigid, chaotic, disengaged, and mesh paradigm. And for about six months after I took this course, I thought of myself like a family systems wizard. Like I was just unlocking keys to dysfunction all over the place. I would listen to people and think, got it. Your family was disengaged, yours was enmeshed, and yours is some weird fifth category science hasn't discovered yet. It was too easy to walk around like that. And like any helpful diagnosing paradigm, it was safe as long as it was pointed outwards. That even with my own family, I was identifying some of the rules and boundaries that cause dysfunction on large scale and the small scale. But soon, soon, I started looking inward. And as I looked closer to the role I played in my family, I found that I wasn't just a recipient of some of my family dysfunction, I was a participant, and what was worse, in some ways, an innovator. The family systems paradigm that once seemed so freeing as a way to open up the world to understand what was going on became an indictment, an indictment on my own heart, my own sin, my own role. And over time, that fear, the fear of my dysfunction began to take a real toll on me personally. And I'll share more about that a little bit later. And for many of us, fear is that reason we don't want to start pulling threads. Fear is that reason that we're afraid that when we start looking into what's going on in our hearts, maybe in our world, maybe in our household, that we'll see just how far we have to go and how far we are perhaps from God's best for us. But part of being formed in the beauty of the gospel means we need to acknowledge those 
realities and those hard diagnoses that are uncomfortable and maybe even make us afraid. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, the Sunday where we remember and celebrate Jesus allowing three blessed apostles to catch a glimpse of who he really was in all his glory. And it's an affirmation of Jesus, but it's also an indictment on us and our hearts. So this Transfiguration Sunday, if we long for a glimpse of this Jesus who radiated at the top of the mountain and to listen to his call, we will have to encounter the same fear felt by Peter and James and John on that mountain with him. But first, let's think back to a different mountaintop experience. The prophet Moses was invited by God, called by God to ascend a mountain with his assistant Joshua to receive the law and the regulations for this new community directly from God himself. For six days, the text describes it this way, the glory of the Lord covered the top of the mountain as a cloud and as a devouring fire. Can you imagine that? For six days, looking up at that and knowing that Moses has to walk up there. For six days, the people watched this devouring fire and cloud, and on the seventh day, Moses and Joshua ascend the mountain and into the cloud. And then 40 days go by. 40 days of looking watching, and waiting. Now our text today doesn't show us what happens during and after Moses ascends that mountain. While Moses was up there receiving instructions from God for how their people should worship and live together as a nation, the people grew restless. And by the time Moses descends from the mountain, what they discover, what he discovers is all the people gather around this golden calf, worshiping it as if it was the one who drew them out of Egypt, who provided for them in the desert. Now at this this juncture in the story, it might be easy to think, well, of course they fell into idolatry. They weren't on the mountain. If they could have seen what Moses saw, clearly they wouldn't have fallen into idolatry. Clearly their hearts would not have wandered if only they could have gone up into that, uh, that cloud and that fire in the mountain. But the problem is today, friends, the text from Matthew directly contradicts that attitude. We get a snapshot of the fortunate three who ascended that mountain with Jesus and still their hearts missed what was happening right in front of their very eyes. So let's turn to that mountain next. I invite you to turn to page 822 of your Black Pew Bible so you can follow along in the text from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9 especially. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to give a little bit of context for what came before. After a, a season of teaching publicly and of performing miracles and having these grand public discourses, Jesus spent some alone time with his disciples. In this time, Jesus was preparing them for his journey towards Jerusalem, giving them a taste of who he was, including the reality that he would suffer and die once he got there. And he warned them on the cost that it would take to follow Jesus. But before this final season of his ministry, Jesus takes a trip up a mountain with his three dearest and closest disciples. And just like Moses in Exodus, Jesus waits six days, the text tells us the very first verse there, before ascending the mountain with Peter and James and John. Now this is just kind of funny. Moses only gets one assistant, but Jesus gets three. It's one of those perks of being the son of God, I guess. Um, So he gets to go up the mountain with his three. And meanwhile, at the top of that mountain, Peter and James and John see Jesus transformed and transfigured right before their very eyes. 
The text says that Jesus' face and even his clothes radiate like the sun. And then things get even more glorious. For three disciples who grew up hearing of the law and the prophets every, every Sabbath day and more throughout the week, Moses and Elijah show up next to Jesus. And they begin speaking with him. Now, you might be wondering, why Moses and Elijah? Why, of all the people who came before in the Old Testament and the history of humanity, why these two? And there's plenty of reasons, but the most important is that Moses is the preeminent figure of the law, and Elijah is the preeminent prophet. So what we see on the Mount of Transfiguration, here in front of James and John and Peter, Jesus radiates glorious light and enters into conversation with the law and the prophets. And here, in the presence of beauty itself, in the presence of the glorified Son of God and the living testimony of the law and the prophets, their hearts start to wander. Just a chapter before, uh, Peter addresses Jesus and he says, or sorry, at the beginning of this passage, uh, Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. Um, in the previous chapter, Peter had made this grand confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then immediately gets rebuked by Jesus for trying to keep him from his purpose of going to Jerusalem and suffering. So here, Peter begins to choose his words a little more carefully. He begins with, Lord, that's a good start. It is good that we are here. Again, safe observation. <laughs> If anything, it's an understatement, bro. <laughs> like, he's saying this, but the other texts that we see that, that, count, that, that document this encounter on the top of the mountain, it gives us more of a clue into what's going on in Peter. It says he was overcome with fear and terrified. He was speaking, not because he was like, knew what was going on, but he was afraid. But he keeps speaking anyway, as Peter often does. And he says, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for for Elijah, that Peter wanted to venerate these three men standing before them and to make a home on that mountain to celebrate what was happening before his eyes. And honestly, that desire is understandable. But Peter's heart and his haste led him to venerate Jesus in the same way he honored Moses and Elijah. Peter was missing the unique, sovereign, and supreme glory of Jesus right in front of his very eyes. That what we see in the Exodus passage are a people wandering in their hearts at the bottom of the mountain. And what we see in Matthew is the wandering heart of Peter on top of the mountain, beholding the beautiful and glorious Jesus and still falling into sin. So think about the implications of this scene. Peter was in the presence of the glorified Son of God and still sinned. I'm gonna say that one more time because we, we need to sit with this sometimes. That Peter was in the presence of the glorified, transfigured Jesus and still his heart wandered and missed what was happening. You see, we can adopt this attitude of if only God would show up, if only he would follow through this way, if only he would give me a visible sign of what he's doing, if only he would just do the miracle I'm wanting, then I could believe, then I'd be okay, then I could obey. But again, this passage contradicts that attitude. Friends, if we were on that mountain, our hearts would have wandered too. When it comes to sin, unfortunately, we're all participants. And what's worse, we're all innovators too. 
And the scary part about perceiving beauty is that that alone is not enough to heal us. That beauty is not sufficient without truth and goodness. So if we don't know what's true and we are lacking in some essential goodness, then even the beauty cannot, even beauty cannot change our hearts. That the transfiguration of Jesus, what we see here, is an indictment on all of humanity. That we don't just need to perceive the beautiful glory of God. We need to partake in the very life of God itself to be healed, to be transformed ourselves. And Peter's mistake, it was severe enough for the voice of God to overshadow them. The voice of God the Father in a cloud comes down and chastens Peter saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This phrase mirrors the same words that God the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But this time he adds that phrase, listen to him, to chasten Peter and James and John. And in response, I think they do what any of us would have done. They fall on their face in terror. So where is the gospel here? Where is the good news in this passage? What hope do we have for our wandering hearts? Like I said before, I took that course, Counseling in the Families, my sophomore year of college, and a few years later, uh, I had just been engaged to, who's now my wife, Karina, and we were going through premarital counseling, and I almost called off my engagement with her because I was terrified as I began processing through some of my family dysfunction, the thought that that could ever affect her too, and what that would do to our marriage. I couldn't bear the thought of creating something that she would be caught in that would hurt her, and I just would have rather ended it than seeing my dysfunction hurt her. So one night we were in my car and I was expressing this fear and I was trying to work up the courage to call it off and she stopped me. She interrupted, but she stopped me. (laughs) She put her hand on my hand and she said, Hunter, please trust me and please trust God more than you're afraid of yourself. And it was in that like moment of really profound fear and my fear of my anxiety and my like dysfunction that and my shame, her words met me as an invitation to a better way. And I think that moment in my life is the closest example I have to what Peter and James and John encounter next on that mountain. The text continues, as Peter and James and John were bent over in their fear, Jesus walks over and he touches them. And the first words out of his mouth are, rise and have no fear. The first words the disciples hear from Jesus in their moment of being reprimanded by God the Father are, rise and have no fear. And it's this moment, friends. It's this moment that's just as much a revelation of Jesus' character as his glorious transfiguration. Jesus' mercy is not a contradiction to his glorious power. As a matter of fact, it's a consummation of his divine life. That the disciples can rise and listen and trust Jesus, their king, their Messiah, is not only glorious in beauty, he's good. And he's true. And he is merciful. And in that moment, Jesus invites them not only to perceive him in his glory, but to partake and receive and participate in his life. And the text says, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one 
no one but Jesus only. The truth and the law and the goodness testified in the prophets is fulfilled in this moment in the beautiful, glorious, divine mercy of Jesus. So my friends, don't let fear keep you from fulfilling the call to follow Jesus. You may still have so much to be fearful of in your own heart and in your world, but the same powerful, glorious, beautiful Jesus invites you to trust him and his mercy and his grace more than you fear yourself or anything else in your world. So are you listening to him? God's mercy calls calls to us through Christ, and we are called to listen in every season, in every valley, on every mountaintop, and in everything in between. In every circumstance, we are called to listen to Jesus. The season of Lent starts this Wednesday. Now, I know I'm not supposed to say that because it's Transfiguration Sunday, and we're not there yet, but we we need to look ahead just a little bit for a moment here. Lent is a season of fasting, of reflection, of repentance, and, I would argue, of listening. Lent is the season for being down in the valley, not up on the mountain. So I challenge you today, go ahead and commit to going all in this Lent. Specifically, I want to challenge you to listen to Jesus in the ordinary ways. Prayer, fasting, and reading scripture. Don't make the easy mistake of wanting Jesus to speak to you in these extraordinary ways when he's already promised to meet you in his spirit and in his word. Put down whatever it takes to pick up time and space to listen to Jesus in prayer and in fasting and in reading scripture. And through every season, we're invited to hold on to that same vision. Jesus, supreme in power and glory, inviting you, inviting us out of our sin and fear and into his life. Because you see, the lie of fear is that if we could see better circumstances, we would be better. Like the people at the bottom of the mountain, if only they could see what's going up, then they would know what's going on. But that's just not the case. The gift of the gospel to you and the good news for us today is that we get to listen to Jesus and cling to his life no matter what season or circumstance we are in today. And by listening and receiving him, we partake in that same life and love which radiated at the top of that mountain. And for those in Christ, a different cloud has descended upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps the most faithful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that reminder to listen to Jesus. Sometimes it's a whisper. Sometimes it's a bit louder. And sometimes (laughs) he's saying, listen, listen to Jesus. Listen to your King. Receive his mercy. So as the season of Lent approaches and whenever you experience fear leading you in your life, hold on to that vision of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hold on to the good news that not only is your Jesus beautiful, but he's good and he's true and his life and goodness is available to you too. And the hope of the gospel, friends, is that one day, by grace, we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, as St. Paul says. And on that day, we will look at Jesus in the face, no longer in fear, but redeemed by his love.
the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.